0: The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co host, Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. To Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. Like I mentioned, I just finished my taxes today and I'm feeling some loss aversion. <laughs> Good. I did my taxes long ago, so I'm not
1: worrying about that. But I guess they are well, way more the benefit- proactive than I am. Yeah. Well, one of the benefits of being a poor student is taxes are really easy to do.
0: That, yeah. Well, I guess I can be envious of that now, although I was (laughs) really excited about getting back into the workforce during my MBA. And now you have to pay more taxes. Now I have to pay more taxes, and I really miss school too. That's probably why why I'm so excited about this podcast, so I can keep learning a little bit. Not that I don't learn on the job. I've been reading up on technology and AI and how companies are using these technologies to... Increase productivity and you have a lot of different opinions on different sides of the aisle. Sociologists tend to be a little bit more scared about the social costs, the consequences, a little bit more despotic. Economists tend to point to the history in which we managed to reskill or upskill our workforces to perform in different areas after those tasks have been automated away.
1: Yeah, I mean it brings us directly to our topic today, right? So we're talking about uh, the relationship between things like automation, work, uh, workplaces, and and these sort of power relations that are implicated in that in that matrix of those elements, right? So we're we're, we're today we're talking about uh, we're going to start by we're talking about the relationship of power and knowledge. We're going to focus on. The figure of Foucault through, and we're going to think with and against Foucault, uh, Michel Foucault, the famous uh, French historian philosopher, uh, through the texts, through a specific set of texts, uh, uh, an article on the Hawthorne studies, the famous Hawthorne studies. And then we're going to talk about basically what you do, Jason, for a living. i
0: just sit around. (laughs) Right. Us scheming consultants spend a lot of time thinking about how to make different stakeholder groups on the inside and externally. Those are stakeholders are people who are impacted by a certain action. So how we make them buy into different proposed changes. So for example, if a large distributor wanted to automate its inventory, which will probably reduce the logistics workforce by 50%. Employees are going to have feelings about this and local communities and governments can have feelings about this too. And the company has to decide how to respond to those reactions, how to navigate the environment in which they're being judged for those actions and how those reactions are going to affect the bottom line. And, you know, I'm curious to see if there are ways in which uh, having a more ethically conscious way of doing business can be tied to the bottom line. And that seems to be becoming more and more popular today with the emergence of stakeholder theory in the 80s. And then you have some interesting uh, studies and articles being done of Harvard Business Review, Porter and Kramer on creating shared value. And you see, you know, all over the the school I went to, Johns Hopkins, their motto is doing business with humanity in mind. So there, there's an attempt here to to make capitalism out to, um, or to from, from a certain perspective to save capitalism or to make it function in a way where it, it's not so solely bottom line focused (laughs) and where there are other forms of value that can be created, where companies can play a key role in making the world a better place. Hmm. Uh, and the history here and how it ties to surveillance and, uh, discipline and and, and punishment uh, with Foucault and we're talking about the Hawthorne studies as well I think there's a, there are a lot of interesting places this conversation can go uh, I, I can talk about from it I do one of the things I do is is called vaguely change management and that's mostly yeah. about given these kinds of situations which communications delivered to which stakeholders via which mediums at which times are is are, uh, are going to reduce resistance to change, and on yeah. um, on the flip side, increase change adoption. So AI can certainly play a role there, but um, and and other things, other policies, and, and things that we can put in place to affect behavior. But uh, most of what we do is communications oriented. Tell us more, a little bit
1: about what you do, because this is gonna this is gonna fit directly into our into I think our topic today, right, which is about. Uh, the technicians of the workplace, the, the, the people who come in and bring in different forms of knowledge and apply different techniques and practices in order to, to make people act in certain ways, be more productive, maybe more cooperative, apply new systems. And in a way, we're going to do a little uh, trip in time where we're going to go back to a specific moment that Foucault identifies as, as a shift in moments and modes of discipline. And uh, then we're going to talk uh, talk about about a different moment, which is kind of the the initial attempts to 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 apply Fordism and in that kind of industrial production. And uh, then we're going to talk about the present moment, which is a very different moment, a different, very different relation between uh, labor and production and knowledge of power, which is the moment of what you're doing, right? So tell us a little more. I think about what you do and and before we before we get to go back in time
0: yeah well i think what you are alluding to is this Foucauldian idea that knowledge is power we've heard that Mm -hmm. before and as a consultant we'll go into an organization and bring knowledge based on studies of the market space or industry best practices and we try to apply them to the current organization to the client to make them function more productively more efficiently mm-hmm. more effectively uh and from my space we not not my space the the website uh from from the the, the, <laughs> the place from the place where where I'm coming from my team we come in and we look for opportunities to uh uh better understand the needs of these specific stakeholders usually the employees of the workforce but there yeah. are certainly external factors there as well figure out what they need uh, what they're not getting that they feel that they need uh, and then see if we can accommodate those needs uh, and by doing that making them uh, function more productively be happier uh, making the organization uh more competitive in in um, a stakeholder management sense yeah so and, and yeah, that well,
1: that that's where foucault would come in and say that you are in some way you are you are the technician that comes in and applies new forms of knowledge in order to uh, to implant new ways you know new techniques of power right and we'll get to the discussion about whether this is a fair assessment of what you're doing. I think that that's one of the, will be the central, uh, focus, one of the central focuses of our, of our talk today.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a good way of putting it. We, we want to reorganize power structures to create better outcomes. And then there's Mm -hmm. a question of, you know, how ethical are the tools that we're using and then how ethical are the outcomes of the work we're doing uh and i think in many cases you can create positive change um and align it with the bottom line of of the organization so you are giving them a competitive edge in the market that makes you know these these rich cigar chomping executives happy about the the good (laughs) positive change that's happening right i I think it's possible sometimes to make those things aligned and uh Maybe in some cases, because of uh, procedural law or institutional systemic uh, barriers, it's going to be harder to make positive change. But uh, maybe, maybe, maybe let's 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 uh, go to Foucault. Start there, and then let's see uh, see how yeah. we can use him in a, in a change management context. Yeah, let's see how we can use Foucault to go back in time and think about
1: you know specific moments in the relationship between knowledge and power, and thief. If we can use him to think about what you do or use what you do to think against his theory. So for today we read uh, Foucault's, parts of Foucault's famous text uh, on, on uh, the birth of the prison. Discipline and punish the birth of the prison. Foucault's famous text on, on, on where he makes a, a sort of sweeping thesis about new forms of, of power that arose uh, basically at the end of the 18th century. Uh, or around the 18th, end of the eighteenth century, so why don't I lay out some of the these theoretical points that he makes in the chapters that we read, and then we can and then we can get back to this question of the link between techniques of knowledge and power in the workplace, which I think is a topic of interest for us today. Uh, so, Tzoma, I think you could basically reduce very much being simplistic and. A lot of Foucault readers will probably say that there's a lot being left out here, but I'm, we're going to condense everything as much as possible into about seven points uh, in terms of what Foucault is saying here in this text. Uh, one of his main theoretical points, and I'd say the first one to focus on, is that he's he's talking about a shift, a shift uh, at the end of the 18th century in Europe. He's focusing on Europe uh, from a specific mode of punishment, which he calls, he calls the classic sort of, Form of punishment, which is the one uh, that he re- that he sort of relates to the old regime, the regime, the feudal regime, of uh, of where punishment is a spectacle. You know, it's about it's about uh, kind of public torture and focused on the body as a site for inscribing, basically, the power of the king. You know, the the transgression of a of a person against. In any sort of breaking of the law was seen as a sort of transgression against the power of the king and therefore had to be set right, rebalanced through a public torture, basically, a public spectacle in which the body of the accused was, in a way, uh, marked by the power of the king. So this you know, this form of torture, of course, um, is, is uh, you know, after around this, the end of the feudal regime with the rise of, of the modern nation state, we see a move away from torture and spectacle, uh, which Foucault famously doesn't read as a humanization of punishment, but as a new refinement of the techniques of discipline that arise out of a new constellation of knowledge of power. These these two terms are really key, knowledge and power, which we'll focus on a little more in a bit. But uh, basically what Foucault is saying is that there's a move in this new form of discipline, he calls it discipline instead of punishment, Uh, to the soul of the individual's, as a site of scrutiny for knowledge. You know, there are new sort of sciences that arise at this point, uh, focusing on the on criminalistic science or psychological science, which are about determining uh, whether someone is predisposed to crime, whether someone is, uh, why they might have committed the crime uh, in relation to their punishment. And this is tied in a way to this new form of law, procedural law, which is not the law of the king, but it's the law of, of the state codified in a, in a text. And then this form of punishment, Foucault says, uh, which he calls discipline again, is more efficient. And to him, this is key. You know What was wrong in many ways uh, with the old form of punishment, as he sees it from the perspective of, of a set of reformers around that time, is not that it was cruel, but that it was inefficient. And so Foucault basically argues that which really underlies the supposed humanization of punishment is... That there's a need to to make punishment more efficient in in accord with the needs of, of a new sort of way of uh, a new form of production and the rise of industrial capitalism and the needs of having workers who show up to work on time and to the factory and who are staying you know stay at a in a specific doing a specific uh work function for a certain amount of time uh, there's also a new uh, according to Foucault, and this is in this way he's sort of reading off Marx, he says there's a new emphasis on things like property and protecting property and therefore this is uh, there's a shift in the way that uh, the crime is being punished. It's not so much a transgression against the king, but a transgression against efficiency uh, that might be now the focus. And then a uh, fifth point that Foucault makes is that discipline then now is instead of fo- being focused on on sort of spectacle and excess, it's now focused on um, on the soul of the cri- of the criminal in some ways, but it's also focused on the body in a different way, not in terms of punishment and destruction, but in terms of making the body both more efficient through a whole set of new techniques of conditioning uh, that again tie to the sciences, and here's where the, question, the that uh, key term knowledge comes in. And also more compliant, so more efficient and more compliant. So through a whole set of technologies for managing crowds, categorizing individuals, and forth so forth. Again, he sees that this, this is key for understanding Foucault. He sees the rise of the, the sciences as being tied, and forms of knowledge, especially human sciences, as being tied to new forms of power. And then uh, a sixth point: Foucault says that these techniques and these techniques and disciplines are disseminated in society via, via the institutions of the modern state the school, the prison, the military, uh, church, uh, etc. And so he has, if you read the text, he has a bunch of examples from all these different institutions in the way that there's a link between techniques of knowledge and applications of power. And therefore, you know, the birth of the prison, this is this is why um, for Foucault, the sort of central institution that, that, that reflects this new uh, regime of discipline is The panopticon, uh, Jeremy Bentham's famous uh, panopticon. Uh, This this prison that the philosopher Jeremy Bentham sort of um, imagined and and articulated in his writings. That would uh, it's an architectural it's an architectural framework in which one guard uh, sitting in the center of the of the prison can sort of observe. All of these different cells in the periphery of the building, Uh, but the inmates in these cells do not know if they're being observed at any specific moment, uh, given the juxtaposition of spaces uh, between where the where the guard is sitting and where they're sitting. So, um, so they don't know at any point whether they're being surveilled, and they therefore have to sort of self-discipline. Also, it's a way of, of sort of separating individuals, so there's no. There's no uh, discussion between them they're not able to form groups um, and it's also uh, a sort of more efficient form of surveillance and disciplining. Again, for Foucault, this is then the image of this new form of discipline. So you know out of out of that I think we can move on to discussing the I don't know what did you before moving on to the Hawthorne studies, what do you think about this these claims that, that Foucault's making about about the move, the humanization of punishment, which he sees as just a more diffuse and powerful form of the link between I'm,
0: knowledge and power. I'm fascinated by this idea that punishment moves from the body to the soul. And maybe there's something analogous there in how we move from kind of a, in during the World War One era, a Fordist mentality of, of managing business into a more um, stakeholder focused, uh, model uh, and mm-hmm. i think it might need, not be a perfect analogy also so i want to talk about that but i w- addressing the the panopticon upon which are the, the name of our podcast is based by the way if it wasn't obvious yeah. i i would be interested to um or to, so so the thing that i find really interesting about the panopticon is this idea that through the perception of being surveilled that the norms of society or of the organization where this panopticon dynamic is playing out um, result in a self-regulating or the, the norms become self-regulating yeah right and uh out of that i think a lot of the business schools they talk about the hawthorne studies at least in my experience um yeah in in this way that it is simply through the act of surveillance that organizations are able or have been able to increase productivity. And you see this in kind of in, in an ancillary theory called goal setting where you can simply iterate reasonable but challenging goals to employees. And you couple that with robust supervision and then miraculously they start performing better without any monetary incentive. So you see this thing recurring, but I don't know if that's exactly the whole story. So the Hawthorne studies are often cited as proof of this Foucauldian dynamic playing out in organizations. And the, the um, uh, basically, so, so the Hawthorne studies took place in Chicago, I think in the 1920s, tw- 20s. By the way, the, the article that we looked at that was actually critical of this common view of the Hawthorne Studies, it's called yeah. "The Hawthorne Studies: A Fable for Our Times" by the infamous. Actually, we we don't, I don't know that that much about this author, but E A M Gale from yeah. Uh, he must be infamous with those with those
1: with those initials for you know instead of E A M Gale yeah the mysterious
0: we should say E A M Gale yeah from a, a medical school unit in Southmead Hospital, Bristol, United Kingdom. So yeah, that's where this text came from. Also, an interesting
1: perspective from, a, you know, in the context of what we're reading, you know, a doctor would have been seen by Foucault as one of these new practitioners of knowledge. But setting that aside, you know, tell us about this argument that he's making or the way he's, I think, seeing these conference studies in a different way, right? Than, than maybe the traditional um, business school right. interpretation.
0: Well, the fable goes, according to Gail, that um, there were these uh, test rooms where consultants came in and they studied a group of uh, female workers who were, not that it matters if they were female, or maybe it does in this context, I'm not sure, uh, who were doing something with phones or transferring information. I don't remember the exact function. I remember it correctly. Anyway, they
1: were... Oh, what were they transferring calls? I don't remember.
0: Transferring calls or something. Or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll check. <laughs> it's, it's kind of irrelevant to, to yeah. what they were looking for. So basically some what, repeti- what mundane repetitive task. Exactly, which would be automated today. Yes. So the consultants wanted to find out if changing lighting patterns in the room had any effect on productivity. So they would dim the lights, test productivity, they'd heighten the lights, test productivity, and this went on for a period of time. And as they became more involved and interested with these test subjects, uh, no matter what lighting setting they used, uh, productivity continued to increase. And uh, the fable goes that uh, they decided, or some analysts at, after the studies decided, well, it was the simple, the, well, the simple act of being supervised that had this profound effect on productivity. Yeah. Uh, and Gail says that's basically wrong. If you think about the historical context in which these studies were occurring, where you had this kind of assembly line approach to business, a bunch of factory workers standing around an assembly line and they are asked to perform a series of repetitive manual tasks perfectly and then they're going to get paid a sufficient wage so they can consume the products that they're producing and it's this kind of cyclical self sustaining uh production oriented economy mm-hmm. that's that's the the Fordist approach Um mm-hmm. uh, but in the context of all that, uh, these workers aren't really given a whole lot of personal attention. They're almost treated like numbers. But in, in this test, the researchers uh, start building relationships with these test subjects, and they're giving them a lot of attention, and they're having conversations, and, and the test subjects feel kind of like they're being treated like uh, human beings. And yep. it's as the sense of of uh being treated like humans increases productivity also increases so gail is is if i'm understanding him correctly he's making the very uh, important point that when you treat stakeholders better you meet their needs and you make them feel more included and like they maybe are doing something important and maybe have a an opportunity to influence decision-making processes then they perform better and they produce more. Mm -hmm. So I think that is the the key takeaway there. And it it fits in nicely with the kind of work that my team does, because we're always looking for opportunities to work with stakeholders to make them feel like their needs are being met, not just make them feel that way, but really, really do it um, so they can uh, work more effectively and efficiently at the same time. Yeah. So you know, interesting,
1: interesting what your you know your gloss on this article because on the one hand, the traditional reading is that there's again there's a link between knowledge and power. Uh, these people are testing the way that they can affect the atmos- the atmospherics of the work situation in order to cause uh, workers to be more productive, and what they seem to find is that. Surveillance, in a way, makes these workers more productive. Gail's reading, on the other hand, is in a way an anti-Foucauldian reading, and he's telling us, no, what's going on here is is exact is that the workers are feeling like they are being uh, treated as individuals. Uh, they are being they are not just uh, they're not just uh, you know moments in a in a work process. They're not just a repetitive a repetitive function. They are human beings with uh, more dimensionality and they're being treated as such and in some ways singled out as such. And because they're being singled out and given attention, they therefore feel like what they do must be of importance and and therefore they feel proud of it. Now, now now I'm sure, however uh, that Foucault could probably read this in another way, he would say, this is another. This is a great example of a, that we're moving closer to the soul, in a way, to the soul of the worker, right? Right. Because because what you have is uh, the attempt to create a more productive form of industrial production by lining up workers and and making them do tasks that are simpler in order to create create more pro- get more uh, a product out of them faster, but. Uh, But therefore, you must have, you have to, under such forms of of labor, which are uh, in in no way can they ever be sort of fulfilling. You have to find ways through new forms of management to make the worker feel like he he or she is a member of a larger family, like they are somehow appreciated and so forth. And Foucault would probably see this as, again, as another link between power and knowledge, Uh, you know. Instead of punishment, refined techniques refined techniques that are focused on, on, um, on, on the, applying the human sciences in this case psychology, to making people both more productive and more compliant. So, it seems like we're maybe we're you know does does Foucault give us any? Are we able to escape against these, these all, all encompassing categories that Foucault lays out for us? Um, or yeah. you know are we are we doomed to just see any attempt uh, any sort of any sort of infiltration of knowledge to simply be a, a will to power you know the way nietzsche might have put it so here's you know here's, right. again we're saying super the link between supervision and supervision that presents itself as been as coming as just attention good attention but could be seen as another form of supervision you're being watched you are being watched because you're special but you're also being watched because you're special and therefore you should work you should uh, work you should improve your work ethic and you and you should be proud of uh, this kind of job that you do regardless of what the outcome is for you as an individual or what it is as a social you know what it is that you're doing what kind of industry you're in what the point of it is at the end of the day and so forth uh you know how do we how do we maybe think about what you're doing i wonder if we could think about what you're doing or what do you think about that counter fucodian writing before
0: we talk about what you do now you said something really interesting about the different sides of of surveillance and i think that's Mm -hmm. true even in in the panopticon you find that there are two sides at least two sides to this surveillance dynamic where yeah they're they're The surveilled have a need to please and and make the supervisor proud of their behavior. And that's kind of like a, almost like a Freudian dad complex or a God complex (laughs) that you have. And on the other side, you have um, a fear of being uh, surveilled. There are those two things occurring probably in tandem in any surveillance situation. Um, but I I think you can definitely make the argument that surveillance is still being used as a means to, uh, producing more in, in a business context or in a capitalist context, but you can reframe what it means to be surveilled or use different technologies and techniques to make that surveillance more stake pro, more, more pro stakeholder and maybe at the end of the day Foucault would say well that's just that's exactly the history of modernity where we've taken these oppressive techniques and um, whitewashed them so they can be more palatable but they they're still effective and i imagine he'd take issue with it from that perspective but i don't know if that's completely accurate because i've certainly been in situations where i've seen genuine collectively being perceived as positive change in in an institutional context
1: hmm. well you know before one more comment before we leave i think these this hawthorne studies and start talking about i think change management and you know we we've, we've moved quickly in time from the, the uh, sort of the eight of the the, the end of the eighteenth century, beginning of the nineteenth century, the shift from the what you know what Foucault in some ways calls the form of punishment linked to the to the old regime and the sort of new form of punishment that's focused on discipline and new regimes of discipline linked maybe to the modern nation state in Europe, and then we've come to you know to uh, industrial production in the early twentieth century, for this mass production, and in some ways the rise of the whole new in some ways industry of uh, work worker man- work management human resources which will eventually could become human resources but um, managerialism right uh, the idea that that in some ways you have to find ways to think of your workers as as uh, individuals that you have to create a group feeling a sort of family feeling but also learn techniques to manage them to make them both more productive but also more maybe in some ways um, compliant of company norms and such so there's there's definitely that Foucauldian reading right that that the the birth of managerialism is maybe just a just like Foucault is saying that the birth of discipline is just a response to new and new requirements um in some ways linked to uh to the rise of uh, new forms of work and new forms of new institutions and new uh, and a new form of the state. That what we're seeing in the case of the husband studies is something similar, that uh, new forms of power and knowledge linked to to new new forms of, of production. So then this question comes up then, uh, and then I think it's important for you maybe to talk a little bit about change management and what uh, how it might help us to think a little bit against this all, again, all-powerful, framework, theoretical framework that Foucault has that makes it, I think, that uh, for us to think outside of whether modernity is anything else, but newer and more efficient and more diffuse forms of power and of... Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about change management, which is, I think, a
0: component, an important component of what you do nowadays. It really became popularized as a consulting service. In the 1980s, with uh, McKinsey, which is one of the largest uh, management consulting companies today, but they started mm-hmm. selling it to companies that were trying to transform how they do business. Like I said before, stakeholders are impacted individuals, so they're employees, customers, local communities, and the public and media. And uh, when you position the stakeholder at the center of your value chain, you find yourself spending a lot of time and money trying to make your stakeholders at least feel included and supported, so they yeah. perform effectively and sustainably, and they adopt changes and they become more compliant, like you said. Yeah. So, and so this often results in a lot of positive changes. Uh, to do this, you know, change practitioners they'll conduct focus groups and interviews to collect data on the workforce. It could be behavioral, attitudinal. Um, demographic and and psychometric and you can sounds a a little scary or or Silicon Valley but you can (laughs) can take all that data and start building out here's where we are today in terms of um, the competencies and skills and uh, capabilities and needs of our workforce and here's where we want it to be, to be more modernized and to function in a different way yeah. And that's kind of the beginning of any transformation effort from a change management perspective. Uh, and then you're going to use a lot of, you're going to use that data to create strategies and roadmaps so you can start applying strategic communications to get those stakeholders to lean in and even champion the changes. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it's what they're championing might not really be in their best interest if it's, you know in some cases you ai will automate away tasks where if someone's job is comprised of a series of uh repetitive manual tasks they might not have a job anymore but the the nice thing about ai right now at least at this moment or our robotic process automation at least is that it's only automating tasks so by and large you had you have skilled humans who can perform intellectual tasks, then the RPA is actually going to help them do their job better because they're, they're going to be able to focus on those other tasks that require human intervention or human hmm. human uh, in more intellectual thinking. So uh, there are different aspects there. but So there could be situations that are difficult like that. There can other also be other situations where maybe like you've... You've acquired a new company and you have all these de- decentralized IT systems and it's very hard to communicate and that means you're not managing risk very well. You don't know what the other business units are doing. So you have to come in and centralize all that data in a single ERP system and that's gonna that can even require cultural change sometimes because people are so used to using these antiquated inefficient processes. You have to get them on board with this new technology and train them and and tell them that everything's going to be all right. And then at the end of the day, you you end up having a much happier, more fulfilled, uh, better managed workforce. So those are just some like different, different ways of thinking about it. And I'll just say change management can occur at an individual level. It's changing the behavior of individuals. Also at the organizational level where you're changing the behavior of groups. And then there's the enterprise level you are building mm-hmm. a change management core capability into the organization to be more agile and uh, in an open, competitive market. Yeah.
1: So, so
0: I'm we, very much. We, I was just gonna say, from my perspective, you know, I'm still very much a student of change management, although I'm practicing it. For me, it's primarily about communication. So we want to change attitudes and behaviors, and give given certain social preconditions. Uh, which messages communicated? Com- uh, I said this before. Communicated by the which mediums, and which times will most effectively impact stakeholders to achieve our goals? And I, th- I really think that's key, um, because if mm. if we can we can implement all these changes, but if we're not communicating to create awareness and understanding and engagement, then those those changes are never going to be used, and then you don't get any ROI on that implementation, and it's it's. Um, all for nothing at that point. So, if I
1: hear you right, it seems like, you know, the job of a change management consultant is is a multifaceted sort of job, but you're you're sort of you come in and your job can be to change to apply new systems that make, let's say things um the work the specific company maybe more more um more productive more agile more reactive that makes people's jobs more productive that make them uh, work together in new ways your job can be to change simply into something that individuals do that is in some form of uh in some way and form detrimental to the mission of the company or to some other stated mission um it can be changing cultures of the way things are done the way information is transferred so there's there's you know there's various it's a very It's very interesting because in some ways, you know, uh, looking, focusing on what we just read, I think Foucault would say, ah, Jason, he's, you know, he's the, if we look at what Jason does, we would get a sense of the new forms of discipline that are being uh, developed in the workplace, the the new links between knowledge and power. And so what I'm interested in is is how how can we see that from a different lens, right? How do we... Can we critique Foucault to a certain extent? Is what you do simply? Can we see? Do, do we have to see what you do simply from a from from an nefarious perspective? Of your job is simply to make compliant subjects, individuals more productive. Make them more product, compliant and more productive. You're just a more uh, sophisticated version <laughs> of what came before <laughs> with the Hawthorne studies. You're not just sitting there figuring out do I turn on the light or turn off the light. You're bringing, you're mobilizing all this knowledge from psychology to to organizational management to uh, communications to all these different academic fields are being condensed into one spot in the figure of Jason, who comes in, and uh, the consultant who comes in to uh, like in the if if anybody has seen the movie Office Space. You know where the consultant comes in and, and everybody freaks out because they know this means they're gonna everything's gonna get reorganized people are gonna get fired and it's all at the end of the day focused on the bottom line but i think for you it seems to me that the key moment is this question the key the key differentiator perhaps is this idea of stakeholders um and perhaps you know perhaps uh Perhaps there are other other elements we can add to that to that link to the stakeholders. You know, what is this, what is this notion of stakeholders signal to us? Uh, you know, uh, given that what you do in some ways is perhaps is rationalize functions. You know, make the firm work in a more perhaps rational manner, uh, change culture, and uh, and so forth.
0: Uh, yeah, I I want to ask Foucault though okay, let's say it is a more sophisticated form of discipline, but you know, I always come back to this when we look at these social constructivist viewpoints, is that no matter how we organize power, it's, we're still going to have a structure of power that is going to slant in a certain direction. And it's up to the stakeholders of that structure to decide whether or not that slant is just or unjust. And we can go through this cycle of of building up and taking down power structures, or we can kind of dig into core enlightenment values and try to figure out how to bring in a greater sense of of justice to organizations and institutions and align them as well as possible with the interests of people and and uh, and the bottom line for these organizations which in many circumstances you can do and especially when more and more businesses start incorporating social stewardship as core business functions the laggards are likely to face competitive challenges because people employees are going to jump ship if they feel like competitors are doing a better job taking care of their workforces and I also looked at Edelman's trust parameter or for 20 years they've monitored and informed and general population respondents relative to levels of trust in global institutions as businesses Mm -hmm. media governments NGOs yeah but more and more stakeholders are looking to individual employers to earn trust by leading positive social change Um, because they they're trusting media less and less they're trusting governments less and less and they need someone to be this beacon of light, and you have a lot of organizations responding to this demand by doing it, uh, so they can attract better talent and effectively advance the bottom line. But I think that's that's the kind of general track. Yeah. So
1: this, you know, this 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 brings me to I think what would be my critique of Foucault, and I think one way of of. Activating that critique would be to think through some specific cases, but before we get to those, you know, th- something that you were making me think about, um, Jason, and what you were saying, is one of the key questions I think here is whether a process like change management and this new stakeholder model actually makes us actually indicates a more democratic form of uh, the firm of capitalism of production. Right. This is a key question. Right. People are, people in some ways, um, this the idea of stakeholders means that there's more people than just the shareholders who have an ultimate stake on what a company does. We can pay. Maybe we can even look back at the, at the, at the, uh, the Hawthorne studies and say, uh, if we give a Foucauldian reading, we could say, well, part of what's going here, managerialism, is simply arising as a way to counteract uh, other alternative forms of. Uh, worker association, such as the union, which could have more radical consequences for the interests given the interests of companies. Okay, well, in our present moment, you know, we could see stakeholder stakeholder the stakeholder model similarly as a sort of way to undercut other forms of association. But we could also read them, perhaps. You know, I think this question, this is an open question, which we can't really. We could have a, we could have another maybe on a future show we can debate it me and you but it's not a question I think we could deal with in this show uh, in this episode um, right now but we could lay out the question does the stakeholder model indicate a more democratic form of uh, of carrying out you know of carrying out uh, production of of the firm of the company of the institutions or does it signal maybe uh, just another, just another new attempt to undercut it. So in the, in the, but in the yes. spirit of maybe starting to answer that question, you know, I would, I would sort of develop my own critique of Foucault, which is this idea that uh, that uh, there is, in some ways, there's, a, there's a way in which we to think about what you do. I think nowadays, and to think about what you do in a, in a fair way, we have to think about all the different levels that in in some ways, uh, we have to think about, right? There's a level of what you do internally in the company, uh, which, you know, uh, is controlled to a certain extent by the company. But then there's a level of, of uh, the laws, the existing laws. You know, what are the boundaries that are given to firms? And then the level of the, the specific cultural expectations that exist in a society. Uh, what what are What do people consider is okay for a company to do? And then the ends of the company. What does the company do for a living, right? So, uh, you know, if you are, and this is this is I think a subject of interest to you. If you're the company Blackwater, and what you do at the end of the day is linked to to uh, foreign policy in a way that a lot of people would find be critical of, then you know it doesn't matter if you clean up your act in terms of in terms of whether you're hiring mercenaries that are that are trigger happy, and 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 have a hard time differentiating between uh
0: legitimate targets and major civilians. major quality control issue right which is a you. it doesn't
1: one. you know yeah at the end of the day it doesn't matter if you clean up your act to a certain extent you still do something that a lot of people are going to find culturally unacceptable so these these levels i think are interesting for us to talk about right and maybe um i know me and you discussed that that it would be interesting to sort of take what i call the levels of the internal level of the company the external and then the external levels of the normative the laws and the ends of what these companies do and the cultural expectations and discuss how they might be affecting what companies can do and how they, in some ways have created the need for, for something like what you do. Someone who can come in and say, um, this is how you need to be, this is how you need to, this is what you need to do to continue to be a, a viable company. Right?
0: Yeah. Not but only I a think company that's that a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, I just wanted to thank you, though, for bringing up this element of the employees getting a say in the decision-making process and having kind of strategic alignment at the top around some kind of shared vision and a line of communication down, up and down the the chain of command. Mm -hmm. So when you bring that in, you do have a far more democratic process. So I think that that would be something interesting to look at in terms of a critique of Foucault and you know we may still end up with with well this is still just kind of a whitewashed version of of the same discipline that's existed for hundreds of years, thousands of years. Yeah, but I, I think it's hard. It's hard to because I've seen in certain situations there there you have real changes occurring as a result of those communications, where um, you know even with focus groups the. Uh, the feedback that you are receiving from the bottom of the uh, command chain where a lot of those employees are going to be most impacted by some, it could be a new accounting system or it could be an AI or an automated uh, uh, process, but their feedback gets roped into the design of that function, so it works better for them. Now I've seen that happen over and over again. So I, I think there is something to say about um, at least significantly improving the outcomes, not solving them, but significantly improving them, which shouldn't be downplayed by Foucault. Well that's just my prerogative right now.
1: Yeah, and then and, and this is the critique you know this is the critique that in that in some ways is leveled against Foucault that uh, his exposition of this whole new forms of discipline and punishment fails to take into account the, the, the specific development of other fields like the law and the way that the law was already shifting towards uh, a model that wasn't about uh, in some ways protecting the sovereignty of the king or the sovereignty of the state but it was about the sovereignty of the people in some ways or the citizen and so a whole right. new shift in law and in what the direction of the law was so that it's uh, we have a new concept of what the law is would be transgressed again and what is being protected with the law. That of course is not perfect, but is a shift that that Foucault maybe doesn't take into account. And so the way that individuals yeah. in some way uh, are now have a, have a new sense of autonomy against things like the firm, for example.
0: Yeah. Right. Good. All right. Well, let, let's, let's, let's track these uh, levels that you mentioned. And uh, yeah,
1: maybe in some specific, the, the, you
0: know, Some specific cases we can sort of track these levels yeah yeah i think that's good and the first level here is is more just kind of a rationalization of functions and i don't want to reiterate these same uh, we kind of already talked about if you're bringing in a new it system to centralize data because you have decentralized systems that is Obstructing communication and and knowledge sharing between the organization and that slows processes and reduces uh, The ability to produce Accurately and and efficiently You know, there are all these benefits that come with we just centralize everything and we start communicating more and we're all working from the same data Uh, We can do we can provide more value to the client faster. Yeah, so Let's say a change management team is is brought in to do something like this. Um, yeah, you know, there's going to be a learning curve to getting people to adopt this change, but by and large, it's gonna it's gonna benefit everyone. Now there, there could be situations where people might lose their jobs because when you start centralizing data, you realize that there are redundant positions, and that happens a lot after mergers and acquisitions, but not always. Um, And uh, now it's not to say that being let off from a a job is the worst thing that can happen to an individual because often people find better things to do after they get out of an organization. But so we're we're simplifying things a little bit is what I'm getting at. At the end of the day, this would be a positive change that would help employees feel a greater sense of belonging because communication is improving, a greater sense of here's what we're doing, Uh, collectively with all the other business units we're not decentralized anymore we're working in harmony you can foster closer relationships between those business units and you start providing a higher value product to the client as well so um, I think that's the simplest smallest scale change that we can or at least at that level that we can talk about where they're, they're very easily identifiable Positive changes that that can occur at on an internal level. We're not considering any external variables yet. Is what I'm getting at. Right. So we could call this
1: maybe perhaps the value neutral level to a certain extent. And then it's all about internal, right? Internal sort of you know, processes in the company making things more productive. And we could maybe this this is the level that makes it more easier to reach from a coding because. Things in a vacuum, where we could say, "Oh, this is just about making people more compliant." Don't not necessarily, but more compliant and more productive. So it could all, you know, there's no, there's no. Uh, it's basically about making the company more efficient in one way or another. So it links, it links very much to the profit motive, to questions of efficiency and so forth. But what if we talk about then the other thing that you do, right? Which is the the question of culture. Sometimes changing cultures. And this can be changing cultures in ways that uh, are not always things that companies really want to worry about, right? So um, we were discussing the example of of the question of Uber and sexual harassment,
0: right? Right. Well, so so they're different. You you can have different subcultures, and like even in like different states across the U.S. So there's the like the big uh, the the big picture cultural dialectic. Then there are all these like mini subcultures and and milieu and, and countercultures. Yeah, right so right. that's that's going to be brought usually when we're mod- modernizing an organization we're pulling from kind of the wider trend in the cultural dialectic where things seem to be going because you want to modernize in that direction so you can you are your the power is organized such that you are going to flourish most effectively in that competitive landscape. Mm. Does that make sense? That, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think that's what we saw with Uber because we have this kind of trend towards uh, women need to be treated better in the workplace, and it turns out that Uber and I've heard maybe uh, throughout Silicon Valley there there might be, kind of an issue of of w- where men have harassed women. Uh, with uber it was under former ceo travis kalanick a former employee her name was susan fowler she wrote a blog post about her experience at uber and in the the background of all this uber is already taking heat due to a legal dispute with google and for turning off surge pricing during a taxi strike against trump's travel ban hmm. so public and media stakeholders are really turning on uber already and eventually kalanick resigns or is asked to leave by the board so I don't know much about the new CEO and what the new policies are, but from a change in communications perspective, um, I'd say the company needs to invest in some kind of effort to earn the trust of public media stakeholders. And this means taking yeah. internal female employee stakeholders, make them feel safer at, uh, Uber and yeah. uh, not doing this can put them at a competitive disadvantage. So this is how kind of the cultural dialectic is brought in from a transformational perspective to, um, make a company work better by changing the culture.
1: So, so yeah. And I mean, this is a good example because we, we have both the level of culture and of law sort of coming up here. Right. And they're coming from the outside and they're affecting what the company can do in a sense and what it can be. You know, you're not, it's not okay to, to treat women a certain way or, or uh, employees to treat other, you know, for one subject or individual, In a company to do certain things to another or to treat them a certain way and so we have a question of what you know how a company perceives that it must adjust in order to be culturally acceptable uh, and also what it has to adjust to make sure that it doesn't get sued it doesn't you know and and things of that nature so we we have both of these levels intruding and they're both they're both based on this idea that uh of a certain autonomy of the individual which is very much uh i'm going back to this uh, this question of whether whether modernity is simply a new new forms of surveillance and new forms of discipline. You know, I think there's readings that, that perhaps have to do with the, the question of uh, self-surveillance when it comes to sexual mores and things like sexual harassment. But there's also questions of then the autonomy of the, the individual and their, and their respect of the individual's bodies uh, or autonomy, right? So there's, there's a way in which we see that the question of when they bring someone like you, Jason, to clean up a mess like this, there's, there's a way in which the company is by finding itself bind, bound by something that's outside of its control or outside of its prof, profit logic, right? So we're, we're sort of escaping. We're, this allows us, I think, to escape a little bit, the, the, Foucaultian, the Foucaultian framework. But, of course, there are, there are perhaps, you know, at this level, this third level, the level of law, you know, I think we were talking about another example uh, the other day, which is this this whole Starbucks breastfeeding incident. And you pointed right. out how, uh, in some ways, Starbucks' ability to readjust uh, its image, um, in the case of what happened in Seattle, which you can lay out for us in a minute. Uh, actually, why don't you do that? And then we'll we'll get to the to what this limit of what what uh, Starbucks was able to do.
0: Yeah. Well, one of Foucault's main points is that through discipline and punishment, you create these docile bodies, and a docile body is someone that can be subjected used transformed and improved but i don't think the modern stakeholder in the way that we're speaking about this kind of individual is is like a soldier with no personality where they're with and maybe because of technology because of social media and twitter uh, it's much easier for people to air their grievances and organize and there's so many examples of stakeholders coming together and uh, punishing Goliath type organizations for behaving in a way that they don't approve of. And Uber is a good example of that. And the Starbucks example you just mentioned is another good example of this. So stakeholders aren't docile in the way that Foucault thinks of them as being docile, you know, kind of just doing what they're told, standing around an assembly line, at least not all the time. So that's another direction. This critique could go. Yeah. Yeah. The, the start, the issue with, with Starbucks is I, I don't remember it was may It may have been a few decades ago. Uh, there was a, uh, there was a mom who was breastfeeding in a store, uh, in a state that didn't really approve of that kind of behavior. And, some things happened. There was a conflict, and an employee asked this woman to leave. And it turned out that she was actually a professional activist. She had, you know, worked on many successful campaigns and had uh, um, experience organizing. And she organized this national campaign of mothers to uh, force Starbucks to change its policies. So mothers wouldn't feel oppressed or unwelcome in uh, Starbucks stores across the country. And one of the barriers though to change here is that each state had a different law or states had different laws about whether or not mothers could breastfeed in public. So if if I understand the outcomes of this case correctly, I don't think Starbucks actually changed any of their policies, but they have prided themselves on kind of liberal values. Howard Schultz, the former CEO, describes himself as a liberal person, and that's kind of become part of the Starbucks brand. They, they tend to take stances on social issues. So he was able to leverage that and put out some very effective communications that, uh, as far as I understand, controlled this debacle as best as they could. And to this day, I don't know if they've created policies or not on this, but it, it does speak to the issue um, or, or to situations in which an organization may want to change, but there are procedural, uh, legal obstacles to making yeah. those changes.
1: And this talks again, I, this I think brings up the, the idea again, that the law is, is a key component to think about if and. If, we wonder. We have to ask if Foucault's uh, critique of law is the way he sort of thinks about the link between law, knowledge, power, institutions, work, surveillance. Is is in some ways missing the point, right? So, or in some ways, complete. I think this is one of the critiques of of this Foucaultian uh, critique, whether his his uh, his critique of of the new their new rise in discipline really understood the specific shifts that were taken in the law or took in, them into account in the way that they were very much focused on giving the individual perhaps new leeways of uh, of action of autonomy that in some ways bind and give um limits to what the firm is able to do what the company is able to do uh, so that's that's mm-hmm. another and in some ways that call for the necessity of someone like you Jason right someone who comes in and is able to help them be you know oh you know we have a problem with the way uh, men are treating women or a company we need you know perhaps this is a problem that you can fix maybe it's not but they bring you in and they say you need you know how can we what can we do to change uh, and sometimes that's that's something that hurts the bottom line right uh, so this and then this brings us to the last point i think the question of ends and what a company does and i think this 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 goes back to the question of law and culture again you know what can a company do it it, in some ways is linked to the law you know can they dump chemicals in the river just because they have nowhere else to throw away the stuff and you and you know they they end up uh, in some ways polluting the the drink the drinking sources of all these other companies how does the law relate to it how does society relate to that Um, in some ways uh, uh the law again puts a limit onto what companies can do and, and what and um, how can people in those companies treat each other or what what I mean sorry what can they do in terms of what what services they provide or what industries are in and whether they consider uh something that society deems valuable you know whether it's a fossil industry or fossil industry or or whether it's uh, arms production or sales, whether it's whatever any any sort of you could you could think of, I think of, of people being, in some ways, opposed to it morally or or culturally in terms of ideas of what's culturally acceptable or seeing as as sort of skidding in this gray area between what's lawful and unlawful. Um, so you know, I think uh, these these specific cases helped us to think a little bit about. About uh, about this Foucaultian idea of the link between the knowledge of power and what what it is, um, how we can think with and against it in some ways. Now, you know, what do you what do you think are yeah. what would you conclude out of this discussion? And before we, what are, what would be your conclusions?
0: One thing I wanted to mention, quick, uh, and you you kind of touched on it the the incentives sometimes for that are um built into capitalism sometimes aren't aligned i mean this is where foucault could have another critique just thinking about the Blackwater example where yeah. um you know the product is is deploying mercenaries overseas to execute foreign policy so you can see where there's a lot of moral gray area and a lot right. of debate to be had about the uh, ethics of of that kind of product where yeah. um a lot of a lot more systemic change would have to occur external to the organization for any um successful transformation to transpire. Yeah. Uh, I was just kind of running through. I mentioned to you I'm rereading Blackwater by Jeremy Scahill. Yeah. And trying to get a better understanding of the Blackwater business model. And maybe we'll do an episode on that one day because I think it's such a, <laughs> the Blackwater a, a business fascinating yeah, and uh scary um, Situation from a change management perspective. Yeah, but yeah, I think I don't know with, with, not with a, Blackwater not type. A, pop- doesn't
1: sound like a class that you would have taken in uh in business school, right? The Blackwater business model.
0: Well, I, it would be a great class. Maybe I'll teach you it one day. <laughs>
1: Maybe I'll teach it though. i will be interesting yeah. <laughs> to see who takes it. People who think that's something to <laughs> 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 I'm gonna learn
0: how to run my new business. I mean, if I saw that on the roster, I would sign up.
1: <laughs> well, well, maybe, uh, we'll have to find a way to to tape that when you, when you do it and make it part of this podcast.
0: Well, so with a company like Blackwater, I don't know if you could go in there and, uh, given like the, the ideological barriers to change there, it might be very hard to implement the core business functions that would. And the the risk management and the ethics and social stewardship that that would allow for a critique of Foucault. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, yeah. I think in, yeah. in 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 well, I think Foucault that, has a
1: lot to, that, still has a lot to say to us, even if we're critiquing him in terms of different things in in Foucault and Blackwater again. Oh right? yeah, You're a good place where we could apply Foucault.
0: Absolutely, but I, I think in many situations there's work that can be done. So, so when when you go into an organization and you do these things, you map the environment, you collect feedback from stakeholders, you figure out what their needs are, and um, compare that to industry benchmarks. And you can say, "Hey, these other companies are doing this and this and this, and we're really falling behind here. And really, our employees would be much better off and happier if we started doing this. And we can also make a case that it's going to support the business line or support the. Bottom line, so we can get approval from key decision makers. We can do that kind of analysis, and we can improve outcomes for everyone. And I'm sure, uh, I'm sure there is um, an element in there that is simply uh, uh, sustaining business as usual from a Fakodian standpoint. That we are all we are doing is maintaining the existing organization of power that. Um, is oppressive in certain ways and we didn't really get into that but 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 I I I just don't I, I don't like that we cannot appreciate the positive outcomes because we have some ideological bent that the way things are is inherently bad for some reason that that isn't exactly clear to me and isn't exactly cl- clear to the stakeholders who are receiving these benefits so hmm. uh, I guess I can, um, I guess I'll leave it there for now. Cause I think this is a conversation that we're going to continue. No, um, I think this is a conversation. Sh- yeah. I'm sure we're going to talk about Foucault again. And we're going to talk about Nietzsche. Um, I'm sure we'll do Habermas and Marx and all these people, uh, down the line. Uh, and I'd love to talk more about automation and AI and how that plays into the our, our core themes of technology and uh, institutional change.
1: So, yeah, I think we can, you know, this is an ongoing conversation uh, for the podcast and in general uh, about this these critiques that Foucault was leveling. And um, I think what we can conclude, at least provisionally for today, or I can conclude, is that we're pretty sure that you're not. Uh, your job is not simply a more sophisticated version of the link between knowledge and power. There are some. We have some ways of maybe critiquing that claim. So you're not. Uh, you're not. You're not completely evil, Jason. That's what we concluded today.
0: Well, I mean, because the the knowledge even, that we are maybe implementing. Maybe even partially. <laughs> yeah. Well, the knowledge we are implementing often comes from the people who are going to be impacted by the change. Right. Right. So at the very least there, there's something more democratic about that. Yeah. So in some uh, ways there, we can, there's, uh, yeah. there's, yeah, there's, there's a conversation being had that maybe wasn't happening with yeah. the, um, introduction of, of the Fordist, uh, economy. Yeah. So,
1: you know, we, we can conclude, I think in a more serious note that I think things, uh, the links between the law, the workplace, uh, technology, knowledge, Techniques, practices are are perhaps more subtle and more complicated nowadays with new forms of work and new ways of organizing the workplace and new ideas of what the individual is and autonomy and than uh, than they might have been before and therefore we have to continue sort of digging in um, into these these questions uh, and not simply accepting maybe ideas such as the the eternal link between power and knowledge without, without uh, at least questioning them and interrogating them. Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic pod is the application of philosophy, media theory and communications theory to everyday practical contexts, something that you find interesting or useful. If so, Please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.